Hello, and we're back after our July hiatus with another Silmarillion film project. And for those of you joining us uh, for our live stream, remember it's now a live stream, not just a podcast. For you, <laughs> those of you joining us for a live stream, thank you for choosing to watch this instead of the Olympics. You made the right choice. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and I'm joined as always by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, and one of our uh, head writers, Nick Palazzo, is here with us tonight. And we are continuing on with um, part two of probably 10 of episode 10. <laughs> That's right. The episode that just never just keeps going. Um, but hopefully we're going to get to Fingolfin's vision tonight. Like one of the most exciting topics of this season, I think. Yes. Marie has just clarified this is part two of two. Clearly. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, <All right. laughs> yes, I think that's I think it's pretty clear. Where the, but yeah, um, today, today is a really interesting one because, of course, it's uh, time to um, uh, buckle down and everybody get on the same page about this whole Fingolfin's vision thing. Um, yeah. We will we'll come back to kind of setting this up. Um, we'll, we'll set up where we um, uh, where we started from, you know, where, you know, kind of recap where our thinking on this started like six months ago. Uh, and then uh, we'll have Nick explain to us where their thinking went since then <laughs> and uh, uh, see if we can't uh, uh, meet together over this here at some point. But first, quick announcements. Uh, first, uh, we have exciting Signum University news today. Um, that was... Um, uh, t- so today, the uh, the bill which officially recognized Signum University in New Hampshire law was signed into law by the governor of the state of New Hampshire. In fact, I have right here the gubernator the gubit the gubernator what's the word again gubernatorial gubernatorial pen yeah. The gubernatorial pen, which which uh, the, the word governor has such a delightful adjectival form. The gubernatorial, <laughs> there's an extra syllable in there. The gubernatorial pen uh, with which the Signum bill was signed. Uh, very, very, uh, very exciting. Um, Man, congratulations. That's, thank uh, you. Yes, we have... Uh, We've officially been welcomed into the society of, uh, of um, you know, New Hampshire universities. It's, it's you know, the, the tradition in New Hampshire, all universities have to be recognized by an act of Congress in the state, um, which is um, <laughs> less fun than it sounds, as it turns out. But, uh, but it is complete, and it is a, a very, very exciting day. So, yes, we had a little signing ceremony down at the governor's office uh, this afternoon, uh, and it was, uh, it, was, it was lovely, followed by uh, celebratory drinks down the pub with uh, several of our, uh, our legislative supporters and, uh, and friends. So this is um, a, a wonderful day. Uh, for Signum University, uh, the end of a uh, a unexpectedly long, and of course, you know, needless to say, the pandemic breaking out in the middle did not make that any easier. But it's all done. That is all done now, and we are officially entered into New Hampshire law. So, uh, very fun day uh, uh, for Signum today. Um, other quick announcement is that regional moots have begun again. Uh, New England moot and middle moot are officially scheduled. New England moot is happening on the 25th of September, that's Saturday, September 25th, and that's going to be in 
Durham, New Hampshire. And then Middlemoot is happening out in Waterloo, Iowa on October 9th. Uh, so if you are in the middle of the country or out here up in the Northeast, uh, you could uh, you should put those dates on your calendars and we will... Um, uh, we will definitely be. I am so looking forward to seeing folks again for regional moots this year. We are doing all of our regional moots this year as fully hybrid moots. Uh, so people will be able to attend digitally as well as uh, uh, coming in person. So um, uh, uh, just uh, wanted to make sure to uh, let everybody know about those things. Registration should be open fairly soon. Um, uh, we should have, uh, by, certainly by the time of our next session, we'll have registration links and everything open for that, but wanted to definitely announce the dates. Brian was wondering if uh, any moots in Japan are in the works. Actually, Brian, yeah. Uh, in fact, it's one of the manifold tragedies of the pandemic that we were all scheduled for uh, September of 2020 uh, to have our first ever Nippon Moot. Um, we had it all scheduled and ready to go. I was about to buy my plane tickets, in fact, and then uh, that didn't happen. So, um, uh, so yeah, we ended up uh, having to uh, 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 cancel Nippon Moot, but we are definitely hoping uh, to uh, do that again sometime soon. So it, it, it uh, would have been our first, uh, our first uh, Asian Moot, and uh, I'm hoping we uh, we get to do that again uh, sometime soon. So, um, anyway, yep. So that's uh, it's happening. It's happening, but not quite yet. Um, all right, and uh, and then of course our Signum clubs are continuing. Um, our Signum clubs have been wonderful. We've been uh, running those now for a number of months, uh, and we have uh, you know we've got. Uh, kids studying uh, old English. We've got kids doing creative writing. We've got book clubs going on. We have a number of uh, conversation club languages uh, that we're opening now. In addition to uh, uh, in addition to Spanish and German, uh, we also have Gaelic and we have uh, Japanese. Um, it's a, a really really fun. Um, uh, time uh, to get involved in Signum clubs. And I would say in particular for homeschoolers who are getting ready uh, soon to start gearing up, um, uh, Signum clubs is a really, really wonderful way to supplement homeschool curriculum. Um, uh, in particular, I know how difficult it can be uh, for homeschoolers to get really good language instruction. You can do a lot of language stuff online, of course, um, that is sort of passively online. Um, but being able to get together in a group of people to do conversational immersion in you know, in real time um, in foreign languages, um, both historical languages and modern languages can be really challenging. And we have about 14 different language options available through Signum Club. So um, I would love to, uh, uh, you know, talk with folks and and, uh, figure out how we can help homeschoolers. That's something that we would uh, really love to do. So if you are doing homeschooling and would be interested in this, we're doing from grades three through 12 uh, in our clubs program, definitely get in touch with us. Um, uh, so, uh, cool. Anyway, um, let us move back into episode 10 now. So we, what we did succeed in <laughs> last session, uh, was talking about the A-plot, uh, going through Arathel and Maeglin's arrival in Gondolin. Um, and, you know, we spent a, a good deal of time thinking through, you know, this is the big scene, Right. This is the this is the the the, the end uh, of Aravel's storyline, um, and you know we talked about the execution of Aeol uh, and everything. Um, 
we didn't talk about sort of, well, no, we didn't talk much about sort of where Myglin ended up at the very end, but that's, I think, just as well, because, of course, we're going to, we don't really know. Um, we'll kind of be picking up with him. Um, you know, meanwhile, what has Myglin been up to in Gondolin will be a story for another time. Um, but um, what we did not get to was the B and the C plot. And the C plot is, of course, where a lot of our attention is focused here uh, in this discussion, um, the issue of Fingolfin. Um, I did say, um, Nick, well, I mean, I said it last time to uh, Marie, and I'll say it to you also. I love the way that the B and the C plot um, come together here, the way that the, uh, the marriage, um, the weddings, um, I kind of parallel and provide a, a kind of uh, um, both a parallel and a sort of a premise for the uh, the discussions there. Um, you know, the re-examination a generation on of the connection between the uh, the Adine and the Eldar, I think, is really really interesting, um, and I really liked uh, I really liked how that worked. Um, let's. Um, Let's look at the B-plot, because I don't want to forget about it, <laughs> in the midst of talking about the Fingolfin stuff. Um, so, uh, Nick, what, what are some of the things you would emphasize about the double wedding storyline itself? Uh, well, there's a few things um, about this that we wanted to make sure that we hit on, because it would be very easy for the uh, the double wedding to kind of fade into just kind of background noise for fin what Fingolfin's doing, uh, which would kind of cause us to really lose sight of the human element of what's happening here. Um, there's certainly a human element. The arrival of humans is mm -hmm. part of what is, is part of the change that is driving Fingolfin forward in the direction he's currently trying to go in mm -hmm. um and so to lose sight of them to just make them the backdrop for um for fingolfin's story we felt would kind of be a mistake right mm -hmm. um especially when we have opportunities to get some of our major characters from the various houses of men in the same conversation like, if you have an opportunity to have Halith and Hador and Andreth in the same room having a conversation, you take that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, just that uh, that line, I was just kind of staring at that line of text, meaning of Halith, Hador, and, and Andreth, and I'm like, man, that's, uh, that's quite something, actually. <laughs> that's really neat. Yeah. And Andreth as likely the most learned human available is the officiant for the mm -hmm. wedding, which, mm -hmm. um, you know, like at, at first it was like, uh, we might be just kind of bringing her in just to do it, which kind of might look a little hokey. Um, but that, I mean, who, who would you choose? Right. 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 I mean, a, she's a neutral party. She's not part of either of those two houses. She's, not an elf and therefore not removed from the concept of human marriage mm -hmm. um, and it's I really like the idea of her officiating this wedding just after 
we saw her romance fall apart. Yeah, well, there's certainly an additional poignancy to it uh, for that reason. Um, but no, I like it. I mean, yes, of course, on the one hand, you know, Andreth is not um, directly involved, but there's there's a this 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 whole situation has an almost um, sort of quasi Merith Otterthod feeling about it, right? This is like mm-hmm. the Merith Otterthod of the men. Now, it's not unlike the Merith Otterthod. It's not designed to like ease tensions and, and everything. It's, uh, you know, it's not like, but it is, this is like a family reunion, right? It's the only family, family reunion that the Adain are going to get. I mean, it's not even a reunion. It's just a union, right? I mean, they never had, they never were together all in one place before. Right. Um, and so especially after we have invested quite a lot, you know, in this season, sort of showing these different, uh, you know, kindreds of the Adine and the different kind of paths that they have walked. We've explored through them, um, you know, not only three different, um, you know, ways in which they're connected to the elves and in which they're related to the events of Beleriand, but even within each one, it has changed and developed in various ways. So there's been a lot that's kind of happened here. And so bringing them all together before everything gets shattered at the end uh seems like a really really good idea and and you know and and, and so unfortunately we didn't have to like invent an occasion an occasion really presents itself that offers the opportunity to uh to bring everybody together um so i think that's perfect i think that's perfect um yeah yeah we were moderately concerned about the fact that there really isn't kind of a a a, a um a threaded story in this kind of section of the plot, but given that a it's really like we have it down as the B plot. The reality is it's more of a C plot anyway, mm-hmm. and it's kind of just threaded through. And it, it is partially in the background of Fingolfin's story, so we're getting pieces right we're getting kind of right. chapters here rather than it we're getting kind of like mini episodes mm-hmm. throughout the episode mm-hmm. which right. given the context of this i think is is fine we're coming towards the end of the season so these are kind of our last chances to get to know some of these people uh we're introduced to barra here galdor gundor galdor and gundor we intend to have um an expanded role in the following episode um as, as kind of the representatives of humans along the way there. Um, and of course, all three of those guys are going to have a, a role to play in the Dagger Baragalock itself. Right. 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 Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, Ilana asks a great question. Um, did, uh, uh, did you discuss how the marriages were arranged? Were these political matches? Were they like, uh, you know, how did that, uh, how did that come out? So the reality is so we we did not actually work that out on the outlining level, right? Right. Um, the reality is based on the text they probably arranged marriages. Um, kind of sounds like it. Yeah. I mean it has that but, sense. But if Galdor and Gundor are brothers who are who are marrying into the House of Haleth, it's not unreasonable to come to the conclusion that the two of them were traveling together and traveled through the lands of Brethel and met people, right? Like, that's not unreasonable to have happened. We're not doing the foster child thing yet, right? Not yet. 
Not yet. Not right. yet. So they wouldn't um, the have lived there. The relationship just isn't there yet. Right, right. But this, of course, is the event that's going to kind of pave the way for that, right? This, mm-hmm. this, this, you know, that kind of exchange of sons being fostered, uh, you know, by the lords of other, uh, of other lands. Apparently sending your young people to learn from the Haladin is a thing you do. In, it's a in, thing. In yeah, exactly. They are, they are they're the finishing school of the Adain, obviously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, no, I mean, I, I think that's, that, makes, um, that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Um, exactly, yeah. As Marie is pointing out, those kids, the kids who are going to be fostered out, uh, are the result of this marriage. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, so Galdor's sons, right, Hurin and Huor, are going to be sent as fosterlings uh, to yeah. Brethel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Later. Yeah. And I'm um, sorry, Gundor is not one of the people getting married here. But, it's, um, but right. you know, things happen. <laughs> right. Right. Yes, it, exactly. If if we were really concentrated on telling that story, we could explain how this all happened. Um, if we want it to be an arranged marriage to show that that's a thing humans do, which, again, is a, right. the elves don't do that. Um, it would illustrate another difference in how humans think. We could certainly do that, and it would fit right in. It's certainly the easiest way to explain this without having a lot of backstory exposited on the screen. Right, right. But even you know the 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 fact that um, the fact that this is. This is an interesting place, and it's another thing that made me think about the Marath Adarthad, actually, um, is that they would even have political marriages between the different houses of the Adain is totally not a given. Like, that's a that's kind of an interesting move on their part. It's like the, they are, and, it's, and again, it's what I like about this gathering and about celebrating this gathering and showing this gathering on screen, um, is that... The idea that they're going to stick together in some ways, right? That they're going to be connected with each. There's not. It's not a given that they're going to be have anything to do with each other. The three different houses of the Adain here. Um, they weren't that so very closely related beforehand that that is inevitable. Um, and they're certainly far enough spread geographically that it needn't be uh, inevitable in that way either. Um, but, um, um, but it certainly is. Um, is something that I think is a really interesting step and that we see is going to be important for the future of the Adain. And the way that the Adain are going to be seen, the three houses of the Adain are going to be sort of more, as we go up through, of course, the Numenor period and stuff, um, bringing them together, um, I think is a really important, a really important stage. Um, And um, uh, yes, as Marie points out, it's arranged, not coerced. and that's really clear. I mean, even in the text, uh, that's really clear. Um, well, by the text, I really mean the Children of Hurin rather than uh, the uh, text of the published Silmarillion, which doesn't even give Glorethel's uh, uh, name. But um, uh, we're told that, you know, when... Uh, when uh, you know, when her husband dies in the Dagor Bragalach, she you know, perishes with grief or, or sorry, was it the near knife? 
No, it was the it was the Dago Bragalock, wasn't it? No, it was the Near Ninth. Darn it. Okay. Anyway, like there was clearly much, you know, uh, much love grew within that within that marriage, and so it was definitely not just like a marriage of con- political convenience or something like that, even if it was in its origin. Right, and if if surveys are any indication, um, marriages of that sort where they where maybe they're not initiated by the the marriers um even if they are not initiated by them that still works out to be a good healthy relationship in a lot of cases if mm-hmm. if statistics are to be believed in that <laughs> right case. right Right. Yeah. Now, Brian is asking, are we given to understand that this is maybe the first instance of such a thing of these arranged marriages? Um, Of course, marriages individually might be arranged, perhaps, within their uh, within their cultures in other ways. But this is certainly the first instance of this kind of binding the houses of the Adine together kinds of relationships. Um, And that, I think, is the uh, uh, is the really important thing here. That's the step. That's being taken. Again, that's why this gathering seems to me uh, so interesting and so important. Um, Okay. Yes, and I do have to admit that I was rather surprised by the surprise guest at the wedding. (laughs) Was not expecting Gandalf to show up at the wedding. I really wasn't. Um, Yeah, so that is... 100% 100% understandable, and other people had some thoughts on that as well, and um, so I'm, I'm leery of addressing that issue without addressing the other larger issue. Um, if, if that particular thing, aside from the larger issue, is something we want to talk about, we can, but just now I know it's it's connected to the larger issue, yeah. So that's right. uh, um, more of a transitional point, I suppose. Yes. Um, yes. But yeah, so I mean, it's uh, okay. Well, last thing then before we leave the double wedding behind, um, Andreth, you talked about the the sort of poignant irony of Andreth um, officiating the weddings, which presumably she's done many times since this. So it's not like, uh, you know, in that sense, it's not specially poignant for her, just for us as viewers, seeing her in that position uh, after last we saw her standing by herself in the snow. Um, How are we depicting Andreth? How has she changed? Um, Are we... um, I'm imagining, so like we're going to see in episode 11, which I'm keenly looking forward to, um, we're going to see in episode 11, I'm presuming, signs of the clear bitterness that Andreth still feels. Um, but I'm guessing, outwardly, she's not going to show that very much. Um, I mean, again, we don't want to, we don't want to have her be so stoic that the viewers get no reminder whatsoever uh, of the situation. But again, she's she's always been a good leader and, and is still a good leader of her people and so therefore is certainly going to be celebrating with them at this time of celebration. And um, But um, 
but yeah, I mean, how uh, did you do? You, do you guys have thoughts about how to kind of manage uh, Andreth's? Um, I didn't. She didn't get that many lines, does she? I mean, I I only read the outline, uh, of course, but I mean, it's, she's not in a whole lot of scenes, as I recall. Right. There's a scene where she meets up with with Halith, I believe, if I if memory serves. Um, she's in the scene where our three human power players are are meeting together and she's in and then she's officiating the wedding so right. during the actual wedding scene she's the only one talking so she gets a few lines there <laughs> right 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 um you know but um oh yeah and, I like say... and... go ahead go ahead and I was going to say that, uh, you know, there might be a little a little salt behind some of the choices of words that she uses during the um, during the ceremony. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Marie was saying, uh, um, you know, there, there would be some remarks about the difference in marriage between elves and men and that some of them would be quite pointed. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, I can imagine her. A human woman officiating a human marriage primarily to a human audience knowing there are the elf lords there uh, in the audience and saying some things like marriage among the Adine is not as marriage among the Eldar uh, and you know as uh, you know in, in, in the kind of kind of like wedding homily sort of way like you know you like, like you do right give a little homily about the significance of marriage and everything right give some context there yeah 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 like I can see some lines about the idea of marriage being a celebration Celebration of uh, of life, even in the face of adverse adversity and certain death. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. certainly setting the stage for the following episode. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. No. So that's um, that that would be that would be a particularly fun speech to write i would think <laughs> under the as the that speech being a kind of bridge right between last episode and next episode yeah, yeah so that's uh that's really fun for those of you who aren't tracking episode 11 the next episode after this so this is episode 10 of the season episode 11 is going to be um, the Athrobeth, basically the 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 debate, the discussion between Finrod and Andreth. Um, so uh, that's what uh, that's the one that I'm really looking forward to. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and talk about Fingolfin's vision. So this all began. Um, and I still think that this is one of the biggest challenges of the entire season. I really do. I mean, this is this is a, um, a highly non-trivial thing because the the death of Fingolfin at the end of the season. You know, that's where we're going to end. That's it's going to be the culmination uh, of uh, of season five is going to be the duel between Fingolfin and Morgoth and Fingolfin's death. And this is, of course, a scene which is a favorite scene of many. Right, L- lots of Tolkien fans love the uh, the duel between Fingolfin and Morgoth, and it's marvelous and it's heroic, um, but it's also despairing. Fingolfin in a fey mood. It's Fingolfin in a fey mood. Um, you know, you could read the text as that it's simply an act of despair, that Fingolfin is choosing an elaborate and dramatic way to commit suicide, essentially. 
um, uh, and we were tackling this at the beginning saying we don't want that. Like, that's the thing we want to avoid. The thing we want to avoid is having Fingolfin's assault on Angband simply be an act of despair, simply look like a suicide. The battle has gone against them. The defenses of the Noldor are shattered. Um, the chances of their future victory in the war seem nil. Um, his, you know, his own family seems overwhelmed. And so Fingolfin, you know, his high kingship in ruins, Fingolfin throws his life away uh, in a last uh, desperate, but not even really desperate, despairing, which is worse than desperate, um, solo attack, just um, uh, just does what again what looks like an abdication of his kingship, right? I'm just going to get on a horse, leave behind all of my responsibilities and all of the people I'm supposed to be leading in this desperate hour, and instead just ride off by myself and go and uh, uh, kill, attempt to kill Morgoth without much real hope of actual success. Um, so anyway, this is. Uh, exactly. As Marie says, desperate uh, means dire circumstances. Despair means giving up. Exactly. Exactly. So um, our number one goal here uh, always was we want the death of Fingolfin to mean something. We want this to yep. be meaningful. We want there to be something that he is accomplishing. Um, we don't want this to be simply an act of despair and abdication and uh, all those things. So this is precisely what we're trying to avoid. Um, but it, it's challenging. It's challenging yeah. to, to, to do it just exactly. I mean, the, the text is um, as usual. I mean, it's the Silmarillion, right? So we don't get a whole lot of detail. We don't get a, we don't get an internal monologue from Fingolfin, right? Telling us what he's thinking at this time. Um, so, what is he thinking? Um, what is uh, the context? Uh, and uh, and how do we make this work? So uh, we suggested the idea that there was a vision, right? That there was uh, that there was an inspiration. And the original idea, I think it was my idea. At least it feels like my idea. Um, well, Dave, Dave came up with the concept, right? Dave, do you want to explain the concept, Dave? Uh, to the extent that I can vaguely remember, <laughs> I think the idea was to give him a um, a uh, almost an almost style, like like a, a vision that would sort of be very consistent with the messaging that Olmo had been sending to, to Fingolfin's family, particularly Turgon in sort of a, yes. um, you know, don't give up. You can, your family is going to beat Morgoth. Um, uh, you need to trust in the West, etc. And just have it be one of those classic, like, you know, um, uh, sufficiently vague visions that the um, uh, overeager person misinterprets and then yep. goes off and does the wrong thing. Uh, yeah. But then, but then, you know, in un, as the full story unfolds, the um, the uh, the audience learns that ah, I was correct all along. It wasn't. Right. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't wrong. It was just poorly timed. Um, right. I think that's right. the short version of it. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. And the thing that I loved about this is that I uh, this kind of this seemed uh, to be an opportunity to kind of do two things at once, right? On the one hand, we would we could kind of transform um, Fingolfin's end um, uh, to sort of reshape it in those ways that we were talking about. But at the same time, it also enables us to bring in something which we're not, I think, going to do later on necessarily. Well, maybe we will. Who knows? But the, and, and that is almost message to Turgon. Uh, because as Dave was saying, what almost says to Turgon changes at different points, right? The message in the published Silmarillion, almost message to Turgon is, okay, uh, time, it's, uh, it's moving day. Turgon, right? Uh, time to pull up stakes and get out. Uh, and uh, uh, don't forget, you know, that your true hope lies in the West, um, uh, beyond the sea. So uh, uh, don't stay in Gondolin. Leave. Um, but that, of course, was not the original message to Turgon. And uh, the earlier texts, the earlier versions of the Gondolin story were much stronger than this. Um, and what they, what that first message to Turgon was, was that he was the chosen vessel. Like, um, the message to Turgon was not flee, but attack, right? Turgon, if you open the Liga of Gondolin right now and you attack Morgoth, you will win. It doesn't look like you can possibly win, right? This is a this is this is an act in defiance of apparent reality, right? I mean, it look could because always the the initial concept of the fall of Gondolin back when it was the very first story Tolkien had written, like there was no other history um, at the time when he wrote the fall of Gondolin. It was the first of the Silmarillion stories stories that he wrote, and yet even at that point, it was always the end of the story, right? The premise of the fall of Gondolin story back when there were no other Silmarillion stories at all was still the power of Morgoth had covered the land and all of the places of the Eldar had fallen and only Gondolin remains as the last hope and sanctuary of the elves. Um, And Morgoth's, you know, apparently... um, uh, overwhelming power is controlling all of the rest of the continent, and the only reason Gondolin survives is because of its secrecy, and it alone, re- re- you know, con- uh, contains the last hope of elves, right? Because it's the last refuge, um, and it's in that context that Olmo delivers this message to Turgon. Okay, I want you not only to open the gates of your refuge; I want you to march out and attack the opponent who seems completely unassailable, right? And Olmo promises him that if he does, Olmo is going to deliver the Valar to come in on their side. Like, the, the, the West will come and, 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 and you will win. Um, Morgoth is going to be thrown down uh, and, um, you know, the uh, uh, light will triumph in the darkness if you do this. So when Tur- so Turgon never in any version of the story does what Omo tells him to do. No matter what Omo tells him to do, uh Turgon doesn't do it. Um so Turgon doesn't march out um in the original version and instead stays within his gates, right? Which is not the arrogant thing to do. It's the prudent, cautious thing to do, right? We're safe here. Um, 
I have a responsibility as the keeper of the last hope and refuge of elves, right? If we rashly march out to what appears to be certain doom, then we're throwing everything away, right? Um, it is an act of faith, ultimately, that Olmo is asking of him in defiance of, like, what reason would seem to tell you, right? And indeed, it's not a rational hope that Olmo gives. He doesn't say... You know, um, you're underdogs, uh, Targan, but I like your odds, right? That's not almost message. Almost message is a you catastrophe will occur if you march out, right? Um, but if you don't, it won't. And he doesn't. And it doesn't. Um, so that's, uh, that's the original uh, message of Olmo to Turgan, and I love that message. And by the way, um, there are still places in the text, in the published text, where you can hear it. Um, uh, the 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 primary one uh, is that place where it mentions how, where the text describes how. Morgoth was always like why he was particularly obsessed with Turgon. How even in Valinor, when they were there together, when Turgon, you know, walked by, he felt a chill of doom on his own heart. Right, you know that, and um, you know, uh, foreboding that in some distant day, you know, uh, 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 destruction would come to him through Turgon. And in the published text, the only thing that we're left with as a payoff for that passage is like. The fact that Arendel, who is the grandson of Turgon, is going to be the one who takes the message into the West and brings about, you know, which precipitates the War of Wrath, which brings down Morgoth, which is not a good payoff. It's kind of lame, actually. I always thought it was lame. Like, long before I had read the Book of Lost Tales, I thought that that was kind of lame. And I was like, gosh, there's all this setup you know, for Turgon, and then Turgon just blows it and nothing happens, right? What's even up with that? So it was one of those things. There there, there are a few moments when, um, you know, when I finally went back and I read the Book of Lost Tales and all those earlier things, um, there are a few moments that I can kind of point to where I was, uh, where, that I found really satisfying, right? You know, that really kind of seemed to um, answer questions that I'd always had. And that's really one of the strongest um, one of the strongest examples of that. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, that's, um, uh, so the idea of bringing this element in, um, and I, so I loved the idea of marrying that, these two things together, right? The attack of Fingolfin and this kind of vision, right? This, uh, uh, this foreboding that, um, because you see, it planted the potential seed. Um, it gave a really interesting explanation for how is it that Fingolfin could go on a solo assault against Morgoth and yet have it not be an act of suicide. Um, anyway, so that, that was a concept that we talked about way back when. Now, tell us how things went from there, Nick. <laughs> okay. So, as you guys may have been aware, there was a little bit of pushback on this um, from a lot of people. In fact, this was probably the the biggest amount of pushback I've seen on the boards over a decision <laughs> made since season one. Since season one, right. We since don't have the to lamps. talk about that one. Yeah. 
Um, there yes. have been there have been other issues which have have come pretty close. You know, mm-hmm. Balrogs at the at the um, Dagaraglareb. Um, yeah, yeah. That the, the um, characterization of Fingolfin way back in season two, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but my Fingolfin was... as an annoying twerp concept. Yes, yes, yes. Uh-huh. yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. This was definitely definitely lamps level pushback um so we set to work because there are some problems right okay um there's some problems with omo being the source of this which i can get into but there's a reason there's a reason why if we were if we're going to do this if you attack morgoth um, then you will win, and the and I will deliver the Valar works better with Turgon than it does with Fingolfin, mm-hmm. um, mostly because Turgon does nothing. Right. Right. If Fingolfin believes that the the Valar will be delivered to help them if he pursues an all-out attack on Angband. And then that never happens. So he decides that he's going to depend on the grace of the Valar and throw him throw himself at Morgoth anyway. And then the the Valar do not reward that act of faith. Nobody looks good. The Valar look petty and kind of gross for letting him do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fingolfin looks like a dope. Right for believing that they that they would come and help him. Like there's this whole host of other issues that like he's either adult for misinterpreting what they told him, or his faith in their grace is completely misplaced. Right. Um, right. And we've kind of been setting up a lot of this stuff since way back in season two because in season two we did the thing we showed. Turgon having a special place in, you know, in Morgoth's neuroticism, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We then showed in season three, we showed Ellen Way um, before her death foreseeing that from the house of Fingolfin will come the downfall of Morgoth. Downfall of Morgoth, right. Right? Um, also, Morgoth helped Fingolfin forge his for- first sword in the attempt to foment rebellion against the Valar. Right? So there are there are already reasons baked in why Fingolfin would maybe not necessarily think that it's a foregone conclusion that he's going to die by mm-hmm. facing Morgoth. Uh, and in fact, that's vindicated by the fact that he injures Morgoth and does not immediately die. Right, right. It's um, a, it's, it is not, in fact, so utterly one-sided a combat as it initially might seem. Right. Um, and also, we don't... We have to remember that just because Fingolfin enters into that situation with one attitude does not necessarily mean that that entire fight has to he has to maintain that same attitude throughout the whole thing 
-hmm. because as as he gains some even if even if we did the whole suicide by Morgoth thing to get in there even if we did which I'm not suggesting we do but even if we did we can we could still create an arc through that fight where he where at first he sees that wow I'm actually doing surprisingly well here right (laughs) this is actually also kind of fun but as he tires it starts to turn into this kind of realization of what is happening there and Mm -hmm. the kind of a realization that he is living in a mythic moment right you know where he he realizes that the very act of wounding Morgoth in the face of all of his guys mm-hmm. has an impact moving forward, not only on Morgoth, but also on the morale of his forces and the morale of Fingolfin's people as well. Right. So even, even if we decided to go with the suicide by Morgoth entry into that, mm-hmm. the solution to me was always in the portrayal of the fight it, itself. Right. Um, but we don't have to go with the suicide by Morgoth because the vision itself can create this, can give him all the information that we're looking to give him. That Morgoth is not unassailable, that the true hope is going to come from the West, but you're running out of time. You know? Right. And by giving that message to Lauren, it allowed us a certain level of plausible deniability where it's not clear whether that where that message come from comes from or whether a Lauren himself even really knows right. what the intent <laughs> of that message is. So you're making Gandalf unreliable rather than the Valar. Gandalf is super unreliable. He's super right. unreliable. He does that sort of stuff all the time. He puts people in dangerous situations and things just work out. He doesn't know that it's going to work that way. Right. Right. So it's 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 the choosing of Bilbo all over again is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 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 So I'm torn here because on the one hand, I am really tempted uh, to respond to the critiques of the original vision idea because there's there are obvious answers to these problems. I mean, I absolutely acknowledge the problems that people are raising. um, And I agree that if it were done in, you know, in that particular way, that would be the result, you know, of like making... Fingolfin looked like an idiot or the uh, Valar looking unreliable. Um, I don't consider that inescapable at all. Um, and the way that uh, uh, the way that I had always envisioned it myself led to um, not scorn, tragedy, right? Uh, tragedy, but not, uh, uh, but not scorn, I think, on either, uh, on either side. Um, but um, uh but yeah, yeah. So Maria's saying one thing I said repeatedly um, uh, way back when in session. Maria's reminding us, by the way, uh, that session two, which is when we talked about this, was in April 2020. <laughs> it was 15 mm-hmm. months ago, in fact. So uh, 
That is that is quite some time ago. But anyway, back then, uh, Marie said what what I what I what I said repeatedly was Morgoth is not unassailable, um, mm-hmm. and so that was really kind of the key uh, to what you guys were talking about about both the vision and the duel. Right, the primary thing that Fingolfin accomplishes is that, and that I agree is a really um, that certainly as a consequence of it, I think is that is uh, is is. Is excellent. Well, but instead of rebutting at length, uh, let us instead uh, move forward and talk about what you guys have proposed uh, in a little bit more detail, um, so that we can, so that we can. Oops, no, not that. Um, so, um, so tell me. So you 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 put Aloran as the intermediary, right? Which which I also really kind of like, by the way. Um, having Aloran be involved. Um, Aloran uh, is uh, I keep calling him Gandalf I know he's not Gandalf yet I'm calling him Gandalf just to remind viewers that this is you know he who shall be called Gandalf that we're talking about here Um, but um, he is not yet Gandalf because he's not yet incarnate uh, as the Istari who's going to show up in the third age but um, we're talking about the same dude and um, and so the idea that he and you know we know almost nothing. I mean, we know a little bit. We get one paragraph about Aloran's earlier career, right? Um, and well, I say his earlier career. His uh, like interests and affinities, right? And sort of character, we, we learn a little bit. Uh, that's really, we're not told a plot line, right, of what he does or, you know, where he ends up being. Um, so, um, so therefore... <laughs> I, I, I have no objection whatsoever to having him appear in various places, especially so when he, when the actions that he's performing are consistent with what we're told about his character and what he does, right? And uh, uh, bringing bringing a vision that seems very much in keeping uh, for a Lauren and the kind of thing he would do. Also, it was our only touchstone between the frame and the uh, the main story. In most of our stories thus far, with with one exception, there have been people who are in both places. Right. Um, in season two, season three, eh, not so much season three. I, I guess you see Gant, uh, Elrond in it, but he's mm-hmm. not there yet mm-hmm. either. So, like... The, but it's right. very common for us to have some sort of connection between the two, and this was really our only our only opportunity to do that. Um, the the big controversy on the boards about the use of Alorn was his physical presence at the wedding itself, which is something that we felt maybe we could do without it, but it would have him come out of nowhere. Like, who is this guy? Right. He'd look like a genie or something popping out of the... Right. Right. Whereas if we see him periodically through the episode, we're reminded, like, people could be going, wait, that guy looks familiar. And then, like, after we see him a couple, wait, no, that's a Lauren, that's Gandalf, (laughs) right? Right. Right. Um, So if we... So we take time out to point out to the audience who like this guy he's important hey you know this guy remember this guy remember this guy right. and then right. when we show him in the vision it's a little bit less out of nowhere right right yeah no that makes sense um it does 
So, yeah, no, I'm fine with that. Um, and we do know that he does, as Marie was, is quoting, he walks among the elves, right? And that's that's one of the things, one of the few things that we're told. So, um, um, I mean, it's never uh, absolutely uh, stated that he does so in Middle-earth, right? But, hey, that's fine. Like, I don't... Um, we know that some of the Maiar are here in Middle Earth, so uh, you know that's that seems legit. Um, and I do like the fact, and one of the things that probably the single point on which I was feeling most uneasy about the original vision plan was that I don't want to overdo the like, and then almost sends another dream right by a river or something. Like we just did that last season, of course, with Gondolin, and so. That was that was one concern that I had anyway. Was I didn't want to I didn't want to beat on that particular drum too many times. Um, so I, this that this to me is a, a really is an elegant solution to that and a fun solution to that. I mean, hey, more Gandalf. Like who does who says no, right? Uh, so Gandalf serving drinks to Halith, Hador, <laughs> and Andreth. Like, come on, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he disguises himself as a cocktail waiter. Uh, well, essentially, like he's he, he essentially is in, present in the scene, right? Uh, in a few different scenes throughout the the course of the wedding, right? Yeah. Uh, and then he's when he's there in the dream, you've seen him before, and if you don't have any idea who he was, proceed in the preceding scenes, you certainly know that he's important now, right? Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's great. I I, I like that. Um, uh, Michael uh, Dennis was asking: Are we saying he's uh, been in Middle Earth all along, or that he made a special trip from Valinor for this? I'm thinking special we trip. We're not. We're, we're not saying we any either of those things. Right. Right. We don't. We don't know. We have I mean, no idea. Yes, I I agree that it is a special trip, but yeah. the show is not. The show tell, is, is not. not it's right. That's telling it's, it's, you that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to be clear. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and and honestly, I think that once we get to episode thirteen, that things will like when we tie all this together in the actual duel with Fingolfin. Right. I, I think that's when it's really going to start to hit home what's what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So to contextualize the. Um, dream right the vision that he has um the context is his interaction with the men at the wedding right right okay so let's right. talk a little bit more about that and this was as i said this is one of the things that i really liked about the outlet i was really struck by uh in the outline was that um the way the in, the interaction between fingon and fingolfin when they're talking about uh men so tell us a little bit more about what you were wanting to kind of establish there um, so with Fingolfin and Fingon, and this was again a, an issue that you guys brought up when you were talking about the vision, is the the sense of abdication that Fingolfin is leaving his people leaderless. Sure, he's got Fingon, but there's no like there's no sense of heir apparent mm-hmm. for the elves because there's no expectation that you're going to need one. Right. right, which is why we set up back. See, of course, the 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 benefit of having structured the uh, the season the way that we have is that 
after you guys brought that up, we had the entire season of episodes to lay the groundwork to get us to this point yeah. where it's now no longer a serious problem that Fingolfin leaves right. his people because he learned from men as he's been doing all along. And, and that's another part of this that we really wanted to drive home was this is that the men while sorry while Aloran is this is the one giving the vision mm-hmm. the men are a heavy source of this realization and have been all along and that the influence of humans on Fingolfin is steady throughout throughout the season and gets us because it's not just okay did you, did you see the movie The Alamo with Billy Bob Thornton in it? I didn't. Oh, so good. No. Okay. <laughs> There's this, this, so the entire time, uh, Davy Crockett, it, you're familiar with the story of the Alamo, though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah the entire time, Davy Crockett is kind of wrestling with the idea of his own legend. Because mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. clearly trapped by his own legend. He even says during the course of the movie, you know, if I was just simple David from Tennessee, I might hop over that wall and take my chances. That Davy Crockett guy, like they, these guys are looking at him, right? Right. And uh, in the final moments of the battle, uh, Davy Crockett and some of his guys are like holed up in the church at the far end of the Alamo, and the Mexican army is beating on the door trying to get in. And you can tell, like, that Davy Crockett is a physically exhausted, but realizes that th- this is not going to work out, and mm-hmm. the the smart thing to do would be to surrender and survive right right but then he looks down and huddled in a corner of the church is this little kid who's been there this whole time just staring at him and he realizes i'm davy crockett i can't (laughs) do that right right i can't do that to this little kid (laughs) right which in a way Fingolfin becomes this mythic hero to us, to humans, mm-hmm. through his actions. He inspires us, right? Right, right. And that's a, that's a part of this as well, right? And so that steady absorption of on Fingolfin's part of uh, ideas from humanity is what gets him to his his final destination at the end of the season. And so uh, his interaction with Fingon in this episode is about his uh his preparation for the big push certainly yeah. but also his it's still part of his his uh helping along of fingen on his journey to high kingship because mm-hmm. fingen's got a dangerous job like he's leading right. these guys into battle which means that every time he goes into battle he's at serious risk for death Right. right. Maybe yeah. not as much risk as going toe to toe with <laughs> Right. Morgoth. Not as much risk as he's gonna do later on, not right. Quite yeah. as much, but still substantial risk. Right, right. Yeah, you know, can I just pause for a second to observe how delightful is the irony of this whole situation that we've created? Right. I mean, we've created this situation where it's the advent of it's the it's the, it's the coming of more like from mortals. Fingolfin is learning to take the long view on things, right? I mean, you think if there was one thing the elves did not need to learn from humans, it would be 
how to, you know, uh, take, take the long view on things and think about continuity. I mean, continuity, not their problem, right? That's, that's not something the elves struggle with. Um, and thinking about how can we, you know, sort of maintain things into the future, not a source of anxiety for elves, right? right? Um, right. And so I love the idea that um, we see Fingolfin learning from the humans um, a new perspective on something which is itself like an obvious sort of strength, even, you know, in many cases would seem like an inevitability of the Eldar. And yet for that very reason, this is something that 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 they neglect. So I do love the way that this is sort of set up, right? Like Fingolfin, from way back in the Beor scenes at the beginning of the season, Fingolfin is prompted to think of this idea of I shall die. When I'm gone. Yes, I shall die, and I need to make sure that when I uh, die after me, things are prepared. Um, and it's true, like, elves just don't think that way. I mean, it is, yeah. an, it is an absolutely unnatural way in many ways uh, for the Eldar to think. And yet Fingolfin is entirely right. Like, it's very wise of Fingolfin to think, for exactly as you said, Nick, because, no, he's not going to die of old age, but he's going to have opportunity after opportunity uh, to die by violence uh, during the, especially since as we established early on the entire job, like what it means to be high king is to be the military leader of yeah. uh, of the people. Um, and, so yeah. And slain he may be and slain he slain shall he be. Slain he shall be, like absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, exactly. And, um, and it's interesting because yeah. the, the elves, like they could always do something later. Mm-hmm. They could always do it later. Yes. Right? Whereas we, at least at some point in our lives, start to realize later might never get here. Right. So right. I might have to do this now. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And I do. I agree that this uh, we have uh, I, the the whole season so far has done a really wonderful job of doing. And can I also say, like. One of the things that I occasionally have felt a little bit guilty about uh, is that, you know, we decided at the beginning of the season that change was going to be the sort of the theme of the season this year. We haven't discussed that much. Like it hasn't we we haven't kept bringing that bringing that back when we kept bringing. And yet, actually, I think we've we've accomplished it really well. I mean, this is a really fascinating example of the way in which change has come. Right. And we see Fingolfin. Um, and again, I love the way that we have set Fingolfin up as one of the positive exemplars, right, of all of the Eldar in Beleriand in this season. Fingolfin is on the forefront of those who are who, who get it right, who are embracing change, who realize that um, uh, not only do we have to be ready for when change might come in the future, like my death and Fingon succession, um, but really kind of embrace the very fact that he is adapting the Eldar on the model of the Adain in this way shows that he kind of gets the fact that like, that's the, that's the, the, that's the way things roll in middle earth, right? Um, The Adain are more in touch with the way that the world works now, the way that Middle Earth works now, than the Eldar are, and so therefore it is. It is, if he wants to be a good leader of his people, the best thing to do, the way to approach that is to, um, is to learn from the Adain rather than just to teach them. Um, and this, of course, you could say, was Finrod's mistake, right, with the people of Beor. Um, he didn't 
he didn't uh, he was a friend to them, right? He was kind to them. He was generous to them, but he didn't learn from it. He sought only to teach and not to learn, right, uh, uh, from them. Whereas Fingolfin has been doing the opposite right. from the beginning there. Um, and I love that. I think that's, I think that's really cool. Um, yeah, yeah fin, Finrod's not going to get to that until next episode, really. Right, you know, exactly. He's not going to arrive at that point where he understands Oh, we're supposed to learn from each other. <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, exactly. Well, had a plan. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, that's going to be so much fun. But okay. All right. So, um, so that's, so with all that stuff in the background, right. And, uh, related to, again, like once again, he's watching like the generations of humanity moving forward. Right. And, uh, now fully, primed for this, right? He's now looking at uh, aged Holith and aging Hador uh, and the younger generation getting married and, and rising up and and he's uh, he's now sagely nodding along with this, right? He gets this and understands and appreciates how this works. Um, so tell me how the dream um, works into this. And I, and I Hang on first, I just want to touch on Ilana's point. It does show a great deal of humility on Fingolfin's part, and I think that's a really important and interesting thing about the way that we have been characterizing Fingolfin here. Right. And it's, and it's character growth from his... Because his original real starting point is pride, right? right? That's his... Like, one of the first scenes in which we're introduced to adult Fingolfin is uh, way back in season two, He's involved in because uh, we we had the idea. Well, if the if the Nolor have weapons, they're going to want to learn how to use them, and mm-hmm. so they might have some sort of of sporting events. You know, they may have sporting combat um, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. they they go through. Which you know, like there are certain members among the Valor who would approve of that. I mean, Tolkas is certainly yeah. you know, like he's probably got season tickets, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, why, why would she? Of course, sure. Um, and Fingolfin interacting with, I think, I think it was Fingen. I, it may have been Fingen. I don't remember exactly who, who was one of his sons is there with him and kind of like cheers when he, he wins. And Fingolfin kind of admonishes him about, no, no, this is just a game. We're just having fun and and you know you know we're not looking to kill anybody but i totally would have had him kind of like that kind of (laughs) right right uh that's how he begins his journey essentially right right and from that point to this is this really interesting curve you know you have the the moments on the helcaraxa where he's really learning how to lead yeah Yeah. and what that means you know, to 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 laugh louder over a poorer dinner than, than <laughs> exactly. anybody else, right? Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely, the King Loon School of Leadership. Yes, yes. It's it's still probably one of my favorite descriptions of of what leadership is like. You know? <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's one of there are probably uh, three or four literary passages that are often in my mind. I mean, now that I'm in a leadership position, you know, now that I'm leading an organization, there are two or three passages that are always in my mind uh, when it comes to examples for leadership and King Loon's speech uh, at the end of the horse and his boys mm. is uh, definitely uh, one of my short list. It, it's definitely one of 
it's one of the most i think it's one of the greatest lessons i learned from that portion of the chronicles mm -hmm. of the movies mm -hmm. is that bit absolutely absolutely okay so in the context of this he oh and you guys mentioned uh, that he's he's boasting about the effectiveness of the sea, of the siege right he gives a he gives a speech about this yeah and and when we say boasting like it's it's not boasting on himself, right? It's he's he's not being arrogant. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. Like, you guys have done this. And, right. you know, um, and Hador has played a huge role in right. this situation. Here he is, father of the bride of one side of a marriage and the groom of the other. It's not often right. you can be the father of the bride and the groom at the same <laughs> wedding. but Right. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, no. Okay. So right. So he's he's doing this to um, uh, to 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 both to express, as Marie says, to the men, don't worry, you're safe. Right. You know. Uh, but also to acknowledge like the sig the significant contributions you know that they have made that that the men have made. Right. That right. we're all in this together. And and uh, yeah. So it's it's more of a, it's as you say it's it's not a boast in the sense of. Um, bragging on himself or being arrogant, but rather again showing good leadership and and bringing everyone together and praising everybody. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, then he has his dream, right? So then Aloran right. brings the dream. So tell me about the dream. Okay, so when we had envisioned this, we talked a lot about what we should do because here's here's the problem: it can't be it can't be so vague that it could mean almost anything. Right. But it can't give him specific instructions that he is either going to do and still fail or not do. And we don't know what happened. Right. It, you right. know, so so we wanted to make sure that we were giving him messaging that was getting him to where he needed to be. And so having um, having a Lauren basically talking to him conversationally seemed to us the best way to handle that um but having it feel like just a normal conversation right in the way that it, as if they already knew each other without them without fingolfin actually know to whom he's talking okay so he's not aware of aloran's presence he's aware of aloran's presence but he's not aware of who he is he doesn't know his identity okay right right um now of course you know you can make the case that well how could he not recognize him just because we see the same actor and we know who that is doesn't necessarily mean that the character in a dream recognize him recognizes right him. Right. right um michael is asking about um sort of two-way dreams um i we could call it fairy and drama, uh, uh, Michael. This uh, this idea uh, there is so we don't see this happening in the text. Um, the dreams that we get in the text are fairly isolated. They do tend to be when we get a, a sort of a message delivering dream. It tends to be uh, kind of one directional. But that actually, but I think that we've kind of prepared for this by having a Lauren present, right? Um, the idea that. Uh, even elvish art and presumably uh, um, uh, uh, Meyer um, art as well is capable of creating this 
dream state in which you are interacting with the uh, you know with the artistic work. Um, I mean, so okay, fairy and drama. This is a, it's, it's a phrase from Tolkien's on fairy stories when he talks about like the um, the theoretical pinnacle of artistic achievement. Right, the theoretical pinnacle of artistic achievement is when you are like actually it sensibly trans uh, uh, like transported into the artistic world. So it's not just that you metaphorically lose yourself in a story or, um, you know, immerse yourself in a story. You, your own, in your own waking senses are surrounded by and interacting with <clears throat> the artistic story of those. And that, that's how he characterizes the enchantment of the elves. Um, so a holodeck. Yeah, yeah, basically. That's what elves are capable of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, the holodeck is a mere poor mechanical substitute uh, right. for, yes. for, uh, for... But yes, that, I'd, I'd, I'd actually, um, uh, especially the way that, you know, um, through, um, particularly through uh, Deep Space Nine and Voyager, they talk about hollow novels and things like that. You know, uh, uh, it's... That is very, uh, very much a kind of mechanical replacement for that's fairy and drama, uh, mechanically uh, derived. Um, so that is the thing. So uh, this, this is what I like about Aloran being there. Um, when you have like a dream message being sent from Mike Olmo or somebody, right? Mm. It does tend to be just one-sided, right? You know, you um, like the dream that Boromir describes, right? With the, the, the light in the West and the, uh, the voice that, that sings the verse that brings him to Imladris to get uh, an explanation of it, right? Um, that's, that's the way that kind of dream tends to work. But if Aloran is there, right? If the dream itself is not something sent from afar, but if Aloran is there and he is in this way enchanting Fingolfin, um, there's no reason why they can't both interact that way. So mm. seems legit from a, uh, from a Tolkienian standpoint in that way. Yep. Um, and of course, Fingolfin's not the only one who's getting a certain amount of uh, premonition involved here. Uh, Bingen is going to be aware of Arathel's death. Right. Right. Now, of, of course, Fingolfin might also be aware of it, but chalk it up to like this weird sense of foreboding that he just got from this dream. Right. So he may not necessarily be able to filter it out of the background noise. Um, and Fingen's reaction to Arathel's death is muted. Our intention is to show a much stronger reaction to Ignor and Angrod's death um, on the part of like Finrod and Galadriel because they're leaps and bounds further ahead of most of the Eldar when it comes to like awareness of the connection between them right 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 okay so, uh, so the so let's go over the content the content of the dream again the dream conversation um, Aloran tells him that change can be an opportunity for hope. True mm-hmm. hope lies in the West and in the union of men with the Noldor. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting point uh, there. I mean, obviously we're setting up um, several... I mean, we're going to start with Baron and Luthien next uh, season, of course. Um, 
which is going to solidify the idea of hope lying in the union of men and the Noldor, you know, men and men and elves. Um, but of course, we're also uh, obviously setting the ground, uh, setting the, the groundwork for Arundel as well. Right. Figolfin's and... time is short. The siege will not last, but Morgoth is not unassailable. So this is he's predicting Fingolfin's death. Sure. Maybe. Maybe. Because Fingolfin's not the only one who assails Morgoth, right? Right. Um, right. Um, so what we're doing is creating the situation where we're not aware of how much Aloran himself knows about what's about to happen, mm-hmm. right? Whereas if we if we give this to, to Omo, he like we kind of expect him to know everything that's happening in the future because he's like he's he's got tours measure measurements for crying out loud like he's, <laughs> right. <laughs> right that's not that's not what we're talking about here we, by giving this language to Lauren he is predicting a whole bunch of stuff but we don't know and he may not know how much of it he actually knows right, right. which is something that's a very Gandalf kind of situation where he <laughs> right, right. will say things that he's making he is making predictions but what those predictions are, are don't always mean what he may have been thinking at the time mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know his language to to Frodo about um, about judgment and mercy right is very clearly prophetic, but how much he knew about what direction that was going in. Right. How prophetic he knew it to be at the time. Um, Right. Yeah, exactly. No, and that kind of thing is happening with Gandalf all the time. Um, Now, of course, this is a Lauren, not Gandalf, and so not being incarnate yet, he wouldn't have the same Mm. restrictions as he does Mm. later on. But still, I I agree that that's that's kind of a thing that we can can kind of build off of there. so I'm just uh, I'm 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 thinking about Marie says it was uh, it was uh, Brie Melvin's idea the uh, the hope coming from the union of uh, men with the Noldor. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of think, trying to think this through like from Fingolfin's point of view. Um, and one of the things that I keep coming back to is is there a loophole in the curse of Mandos? Essentially, right? Like the Noldor mm-hmm. alone are doomed, right? Literally right. doomed, right? And uh, you know everything that they attempt is going to like they um they have good reason to think that no matter how the Noldor come together and team up and play nice uh and oppose Morgoth with everything they have, this is not gonna pan out right I mean Mandos has told them um what is going to happen and that it's always going to fail um in various ways, so the idea. That by that men offer hope because men change the situation, right? Men were not part right. of that. Um, the Noldor alone are definitely doomed to failure. There's, there's, yeah. there's no, you know, no reasonable person who is standing there when Mandos made that proclamation right. can really doubt that for long. Um, only you have to fool yourself, right? You have to, you have to, you have to uh, uh, kind of talk yourself into that pretty hard. Mm. But humans are different, right? And yeah. they change the the situation. And so by joining themselves with the humans, 
they're now in an uh, this is uncharted terrain, right? This is right. you know th- there is an uncertain future, which is a good sign because it was certainly bad before, right? Now mm. the future is at least less than a hundred percent certainly catastrophically horrible, right? Um, well, let's, let's think about where Mando's. Um, I probably should say Namos. It's easier to do a possessive that way. Namos' right. knowledge of the future comes from. Right. It's not like some kind of weird, like psychic thing he's got going on. He remembers the music. He remembers details right. about the music, right? Um, and so, but the music doesn't impact humans the same way it impacts men. You know, like the the, the text says that the music is as fate to everything but us mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. we changed the math right yes we are outside of that they have no i mean obviously again almost got tours measurements so somehow that happened right but <laughs> yes the yes. music is not a good predictor of what's going to happen to us Yes. Things are going to arise unforeseen. And this happens more often with with men than it does uh, elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so that Fingolfin could derive, uh, you know, that Aloran would impart and Fingolfin could kind of dwell upon this idea. Right. That there might be hope. And as as Marie said, um, she says, I don't know that Fingolfin really believes in the long defeat yet. Uh, so he's definitely on the lookout for some loophole, some way around it, um, uh, some way to think they can put off the inevitable indefinitely or maybe even against the odds escape uh, what seems to be the inevitable. I, I, and yes, I totally agree. As uh, Ilana says, humans are an independent variable uh, in this. Um, absolutely. So um, uh, <clears throat> I think that that's... Um, uh, I really like this idea. I really like the idea of Fingolfin um, clinging to this idea. So we have Fingolfin. But but now let's talk about the interaction between these two ideas. That is, uh, there is hope in the union between men. The introduction of men into the equation changes the formula, right? Changes the equation. Um, but true hope lies in the West, right? There's There isn't any re- any real hope in... Middle Earth yet, except unless maybe there is, right, in some way. Um, so those two things are certainly in some kind of tension, right? I, I don't yeah. say that I think that's it's an inevitable contradiction, mm-hmm. um, though easily it could sound like one, right? So how would how would Lauren say this, you know, convey this to Fingolfin in a way that doesn't simply sound contradictory? Well, he, here's the thing. I'm kind of okay with it being contradictory. Okay. Right, because Fingolfin's going to come out of this and go to the big push, which doesn't mm-hmm. pan out. Right, and because it doesn't pan out, we we know we know right we know that it's not part of Iluvatar's grand scheme, right? Because it doesn't right. happen, right? right? And so, therefore, that's not what this was pushing him towards. Whether Lauren was pushing him towards it or not, I, it doesn't matter. Right? Right. right, ultimately, this was not designed by Iluvatar to push him towards the big push right right? um because that was never going to work like on its own like they like lauren just said your true hope lies in the west now thing might hear the words 
that your time is short. He might hear the idea of the time limit and realize I have to do something now. Right. Right. Even if I, you know, my true hope lies in the West. Like, even if that's the case, I have to do something. Right. right. And ultimately that also leads us into, into the duel because like Morgoth just broke down the best that I could do. Like my, my all, everything that I've built is lying in ruins. You know, like imagine this is either an opportune time or an inopportune time to say this. Imagine that somebody brought Signum down <laughs> irreparably, right. and also while doing that, killed a bunch of the people. Who right. were instrumental right. in you, right? right. Yeah. Cre- yeah, you know, creating that. Yeah. Like I've had, I've had the work of my hands disintegrate in front of me, and right. it is. Right. And you kind of feel like if I could confront the source of that, mm-hmm. and at least get mm-hmm. in front of that, like yes. maybe something could come of that, right? Right. Right. So in a way, he's he's personally standing between Morgoth and everybody back there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I have to do something. Right. I can't just let this happen unanswered. And that's what. And now that attitude can certainly change over the course of the duel. There are a number. Like, there's a whole arc to that that can take place. Right. Um, Right. But this is a good way to give motivation to both of those things. And the duel, in fact, is supposed to happen. We know that because right. it does happen. Because it does happen. <laughs> right. It's what gets yeah. us to where, to, to where we need to go. Right. Uh, whereas the big push probably would have landed them all getting slaughtered. Right. Um, right. So my i think my 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 other favorite thing about the dream here is your time is short i love that mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. um i love that because i love how it um connects with everything that we've been doing all season long right the whole just difference between the perspective of the Eldar and the Adine, right? Um, the way that so, you know, human after human has been trying to ex- un- help the elves to understand um, our time is short, right? And here's what that means. Like, this is, th- these are the, these are the consequences of our lives being short. Whether it's uh, you know, the, the, the House of Bayor, right? Uh, trying to say, you know, we need to make something of ourselves now. Um, we can't just wait for generations because then we're, 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 we're wasting our lives and, and we're changing our people. Or whether it's even Haleth, right? Even Haleth leaving and going through um, uh, 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 Nandan Gortheb is also similarly. Like, we, we can't just wait here for you to think about what to say to us for three years. Like, we're, we're, our time is short. We're going to go and, and make things of ourselves uh, rather than just sitting, we can't sit around and wait like this. Um, that Fingolfin sh- should receive the message. The High King of the Noldor should receive the message. Your time should, and have to act on it. And of course, we've seen him 
you know, we've just been reminded of how he has been changed, right? How he has learned from men. And now this is like the final lesson, in a sense, that he has to learn from men. What happens when your time is short? What are you going to do? When confronted by the fact that you, um, uh, that you have to, um, to see what to do, to, to, to contextualize it. Um, and again, the problem is the elder rarely know that, right? They rarely know, even, I mean, it's often, in fact, true, like, you know, slain they may be, right? So uh, it, it is it's, uh, in, often going to be true that, uh, you know, uh, particular Eldar are, have short times ahead of them, but they don't always know it, right? If Fingolfin is told, your time is short, um, then that's going to affect the decisions that he's going to make. Um, that's going to change how he's... And I love that. I love him consciously acting on that and thinking about that in the context of how, again, learning from the men, adapting to change. I think that's really... I think that's really neat, actually. Um, uh, so, also, Morgoth... Uh, so, yeah, Dave, go yeah, ahead. It kind of... You know, it, it also sort of changes the the way his decision looks too it's uh it doesn't it riding off to fight morgoth and likely die doesn't seem suicidal if you kind of already know you're going to die anyway right um, it, it, it doesn't it, at least it doesn't seem like stupidly suicidal like it seems like a you know I don't know, it's, you know my, like you have to do something Right, um, exactly. Uh, so and, it is kind of that's a that's a very nice little simple like I don't know we we should have thought of that 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 uh, twist earlier too like that really does sort of change the way you perceive his his choice and his death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Um, very clever, As- Nick. <laughs> Aslan's compass on Twitch was saying something about um, a quote from he he says it's either Lewis or Chesterton talking about Virgil's fourth uh, eclogue. Eclogue, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. About um, which has been interpreted as prophecy in various yeah. ways. It's the messianic um, uh, eclogue, yeah, yeah. Right, and how that he was uh, Aslan's compass says the quote says that they're that he's right about the name, wrong about the significance. Like a man who picks jet to win a race but then has his house destroyed by a jumbo jet. <laughs> yeah, it's that's Chesterton, not Lewis. Yeah. Um, uh, but yes, yes, uh, that is Chesterton. Um, but yes, it's, um, it is about um, uh, being, yeah, being, being r- right about the name, wrong about the significance, um, knowing the importance of something, but not seeing the significance of it. I mean, that, Virgil was always the... Um, you know the the uh, 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 to back up a step just to explain that. So in Virgil's fourth eclogue, he makes this like prophetic declaration of this person who's just been born, who is going to become a great person and is going to bring peace to the world and and all these other uh, all these other grand things. And of course, this prophecy is being made right near the time of the birth of Christ. And so Christians, who of course loved Virgil, I mean, Virgil was the most read author throughout the entirety of the Middle Ages, um, they read this and they're like, Virgil knew, 
like I mean, because it, it sounds exactly like I mean, it fits perfectly with the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, and so you know, so Virgil was held to have had by many in the Middle Ages held to have had some measure of actual prophetic insight that he somehow foresaw, even though he didn't know it, right? Even though he didn't understand it himself, the coming of the Christ child, um, even in what was, I mean, presumably. What he was actually writing about was like was like a puff piece for the children of like some of his rich patrons, right? Like your kid is going to grow up and be awesome because you just gave me lots of money. Is probably what he actually meant, right? When he wrote that. Now they knew this in the Middle Ages. They knew that that was probably the case, right? Um, but that's what Chesterton is talking about, right? That like he um, doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's right anyway, right? Um, yeah. He's not fully, yeah. he's not fully getting it. Um, but, um, but yeah, so, um, so Morgoth is not unassailable. That's, um, that's part of a message that's delivered to Fingolfin by Aloran in the dream, or is that a conclusion he draws? No, that's something that Aloran says. And, and one of the reasons that we wanted to have those words used is that, a, we're not sure that we're going to be actually able to put those words in Mithros' mouth when mm-hmm. he's planning his big push, mm-hmm. right? Um, and somebody's got to say that, right? right. Um, mm-hmm. And, we, I mean, we could say the same thing differently if we wanted to avoid just repeating that same phrase. Um, but Fingolfin can, could conceivably, during his discussion of the big push, he could say it to Mithros and then Mithros later repeats it. Right. Recollecting because you also have to remember that at the time of the near night, Mithros may not know exactly what the duel with Morgoth looked like. Right. Right. Um, because while Thorandor brings Thingolfin's body and presumably the story of what happened that he observed, to Turgon, Mithros hasn't seen Turgon in a while. <laughs> yes. you know, a couple yeah. of centuries. Yeah. That's a couple right. of centuries between not quite <laughs> between cousins. elf lords. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a it's been a it's been a it's been a long weekend. Yeah. It's been a hot minute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. I um so the Morgoth is not unassailable conclusion I love. Um, I mean, just, I love that as the um, for the season to end there, right? For the season to end with simultaneously, Morgoth is stronger than you have let yourself believe, right? Um, and is going to crush you like bugs in this war. But at the same time, Morgoth is not unassailable, right? Um, uh, there is no hope for victory in this war. And yet Morgoth is not unassailable, right? That's the, that's the kind of where we get at the end of the season. And I love that. I love that. So that Morgoth is not unassailable is essentially like the, the take home, right? The refrain, the thing that Fingolfin does accomplish um, is excellent. That he sets out on his ride in order to accomplish that. I think I love that actually. I think that's really good. Um, uh, 
you know, so this way when he gets on his horse, he's not getting on his horse in an act of despair. He's not throwing his life away. Because um, in doing that, he would be seeming to lead his people straight into death, right? Like, let me uh, let me show you how useless all of this is, is kind of one way of characterizing the despair version, right, of uh, Fingolfin's ride. If instead, basically, he's getting on his horse and saying, okay, that was horrible, but I've got your silver lining right here, <laughs> right? Here it comes. You know, let me, like, we, you know, um, Morgoth is not unassailable. And I'm going to go prove it. Um, it's I, I think that is really interesting. Um, and I think that that can work really well. Um, here's, here's the thing. The one thing I'm hesitating over, though. Mm. I would... I'm not sure I love that as part explicitly of mm. Oloran's message. I think I want him to come to Fingolfin to come to that conclusion. Um if what, why would he come why would he come to that conclusion? Right. So so there's this there's a couple of things. Um one is Ringle which he can which he can have with him in the dream, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he can, he could say to Lauren, but surely Morgoth is not unassailable. And leading Lauren to, he may not have to explicitly agree with him, but right. if he kind of like gives, gives him a knowing look or a smile, that might get us where we need to be there. Um, Alternatively, alternatively, if we have, if our concern is the idea of that being something Aloran planned to say, it might be kind of interesting to have it almost be like an offhand remark at the, like at the tail end where he's like about to walk away into nothingness or wherever he's going, right? And he turns to him and says, but Morgoth is not unassailable. Morgoth is not unassailable. Yeah. O- almost as if it just occurred to him to say that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is a-, a callback to kind of the, the way that, um, that Lorian talks to him after his, after his encounter, after, um, Aloran travels to Autumno in season one, episode seven. Right? right. And he comes back and he's reporting into, to Irma what took place there. And he's and Lawrence like it just it could have gone so much better and and Irmo says well it could have been different but it but could it never have been, been better better, better. Yeah, yeah and when Lorian questions it like what does that even mean and Irmo doesn't know what it means exactly but he just he was moved to say it so mm-hmm. if we did it that way would that kind of make you feel a little bit more comfortable with it or is it just a really deep desire to have Fingolf and arrive at I'm that just, I'm just kind of thinking I, I wouldn't want Fingolfin I wouldn't want to make it look like Fingolfin is just kind of following orders from beginning mm, to yeah. end if you, that, that's, that's the thing like if, if, that, if that final piece is an insight that he has 
essentially. Mm. Um, uh, and I have two, two reasons to say this. First, like, I think um, what seems to me a slightly more kind of like, um, I don't know, a slightly more O'Loran-y sort of message, right? Is j- like the true hope lies in the West and in the union of men with an old R and your time is short. If those are the two things that are conveyed to him, like those two things can kind of operate, right? And Van mm-hmm. needs to kind of find his way from there. Um, even your time is short and the siege won't last, right? Um, uh, he's got he's to find his way, uh, his way there. Um, and it sets up, I think, the big push better. Because basically, this gives Fingolfin the opportunity to have a plan A and a plan B. Not plan A and plan B in the sense of a contingency plan, but like interpretation one, right? My time is short. The siege will not last. Hope li- true hope lies in the West in the Union of, uh, with the men in Noldor. Okay, um, let's, um, let's do the big push, right? Let's, let's take the fight to Morgoth. Then that doesn't work out that never ends up being able to happen, right? Instead, we get the Dagor Bragalak. Then again, instead of a moment where Fingolfin snaps and despairs, we have the moment where he says, okay, wait, I see. My time is short. The siege will not last. Um, true hope lies in the West. But I, like these humans that I have come to admire and learn, learn from, can see that even though um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to take down Morgoth, um, that's not going to happen. I, 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 won't, I will not be overseeing the defeat of Morgoth and the triumph of the elves, but I can still accomplish something, right? I can, um, there, is, uh, there is a worthy task within my measure that I can undertake, and that is I can show everybody that Morgoth is not unassailable. We've set this up, is the other thing. We've set this up with his beating on the gates of Angband at the end of season three, right? Um, right. Yes. He's already challenged Morgoth. Um, and he's going to go back and he's going to do it again. Um, we can even flash back to it if we need to at some point. You know, uh, the, the, that uh, awesome image right at the end of season three of, uh, you know, Fingolfin walking away and, you know, planting his standard before the gates of, uh, before the gates of Angband. Um, he's already done it once before. Um, and as you say, Nick, there's the Ringo connection as well. Like, he... Um, that he comes to the insight and it can even we can even make it um i would rather have it be like a sort of a seed that oloran plants which doesn't really spring up out of the ground yet for a few episodes right in that moment when fingolfin has this realization um, this is the final, like now he finally understands this is what that dream meant. This is what the message meant. Um, mm. and so, uh, cause I, I think what, I think one of the things that I'm clinging to here, well, is it, first of all, well, again, the biggest thing is again, I don't want Fingolfin to feel like he's just following orders, 
right? Like, okay, mm-hmm. now's the time when I'm supposed to throw my life away in order to accomplish this thing, right? right. I want that to be all him, to come from him. But right. secondarily, the other thing is I want Morgoth is not unassailable to come from Fingolfin. I want him to be the first one to say it, right? I want okay. I want that to be his insight. And because that to, because that's his legacy, Ultimately, in Middle-earth, that's his legacy, right? That's the thing that he's going to accomplish through his death, is to show and to prove that Morgoth is not unassailable. Um, so so I, want, I want him to be the origin of it, in a sense. So what if Fingolfin says, what if Fingolfin says, surely he is not unassailable, and then Aloran stops and thinks about that, and then turns to him, like, right before he leaves and says... Well, alone of the Valar, Morgoth knows fear. Mm-hmm. This is another line which we may or may not be able to work in, and it's a fantastic line, and I'd feel really bad about not putting it in. Um, that is a good line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so giving a level of And that's much more seed planting than order right. delivering. Yeah. Right, yep. yeah. right. Because he doesn't have to know what, like, Lauren doesn't have to know where that's going. Right. Right. Um, for that to go where we need it to go. It's true. It gets us to the point of, uh, of you know, Bengolfin demanding that the Lord of the Black Land come forth. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. And it's not a direct confirmation. Like it's not, it's not a Lauren take telling Bengolfin, yeah, you can totally take him. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But trust me. No, seriously, it's going to work out awesome. <laughs> just, just go. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, or, uh, or, um, this. yeah, yeah. Or, or conversely that, um, um, that Monty Python sketch, World War II sketch where like the pilot is told like that they need a uh, they you know they need a heroic gesture like so please go out and fly to your death um, like th- that's yeah also not what we wanted to sound like um, from a Lauren yeah yeah um, I, I like that I like that alone of the Valar he does not know fear or sorry alone of the Valar he does know fear yeah 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 exactly um, so I was reading Morgoth is not unassailable at the same time that I said it. So I combined them tragically. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I like it. I like it. Um, but Nick, do you see also what I mean? That I, How his first interpretation can be big Bush then, right? Time yeah. is short. Siege won't last. Let's go for broke. Right. Um, is a perfectly... I, I... And yeah. we're from the West, after all. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> right. Well, and no, because it's the men thing, right? It's been, it's right, like yeah. the, it's the loophole, right? Like we've yeah. got, uh, we've got, and and again, t- t- it looks like because I mean, even especially if you look at the shape of the season, right? It's one of those things like it would fit if if you know it's even thinking of Hador only, right? Hador and his little, you know, uh uh his little band of gallopers, right, who came up uh uh and but anyway, so like the the way in which they are now like like they're now instrumental, right? The, the, now that we have the the 
the Edine with us in the now there's hope right where there wasn't before um, so yeah. not only are they not a useless little strange funny little auxiliary band they're like the you know they're the hope of the Noldor right um, right and it could to people who don't know what's actually going to happen right this could that could feel like where the season is heading right mm-hmm. to the triumphant ending I mean on some level, we want to have our viewers believe in the big push, right? Yes. Believe that that is, in fact, where the momentum of the season is taking us. That's where all of the stuff, the, you know, the, the, the people of Beor are saying, we need to leave Nargothrond because we need to go accomplish something, right? We need to do yeah. something. Um, and Hador coming and let's move the people to the north and join with the Eldar because we can make a difference. And mm-hmm. now all that's going to pay off, right, in Fingolfin's big push and the siege won't and last, but Morgoth knows gonna... fear. And, and then yeah. Myrthros is going to come along and stomp over all over everybody's hopes and dreams, which is <laughs> perfect. Yes, yes. Like, here's a do- healthy dose of reality and logic for you. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, anyway, it's it's cool. I think that this is... Um, um, it's, yeah, uh, it, it's 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 not only uh, an excellent kind of piece of misdirection on our part, but again, it makes sense. It makes sense that he would emerge from this and and have that conclusion, right? And and right. say like, okay, the big push. Yeah. But then later on, not only when the big push doesn't happen, but then also when Dagor Bragalak does instead, um, that he comes to his second grimmer. Um, but more accurate interpretation of, you know, yeah. the the prophecy and uh, of what was intended for him in the role that he, in fact, can play. Yeah. Well, one thing that, like, so our show has a major problem in that, like, we are faithfully following a story that already exists. And so the meta of this is that people who are, like, really into the show are going to, like, start looking up they're going to start Googling things and they're going to find out exactly what's going to happen. Right. If right. they're really invested, like the people who are like just right. casually watching, that's not going to happen. But like the people who are sitting there tr- scratching their heads, trying to figure out what's going on with Wanda Maximoff and vision. Like, yes. Those yes. people are going to come to conclusions about what's going to happen pretty quick. Right. But that means that they're learning about the Cimmerillion and that's awesome. And, and that's a win. Yeah. That, that is there you go. Win. That's it. That's it. Absolutely. And, you know, our make-believe audience for our make-believe show. That's it. That's it. Yeah. No, it's fun to think about our make-believe audience for our make-believe show. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so this is good. I, I think uh, I think I I, I just I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine with this. Um, as I said, I, I had a suspicion. I had a suspicion that if you were really upset by it, you would have told us by now. <laughs> yeah. No, it's look. In some ways, I think it's 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 good. If I had been more involved with the discussions at the beginning, I'd have pushed back against the pushback at that uh-huh. point, right? Yeah. Because again, I I still. I don't accept the premises of the pushback against That's the original okay. idea. I don't accept the premise that the Fey mindset is 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 doesn't work. So right. we're we're right. on the same page, right? <laughs> you know? Right. Um, um, and, and alternatively, I wasn't around during the discussion in session ten when the, when all this 
got to where it was. So, you know. Right. right. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, I, so yeah, I, but not having missed that initial discussion and instead just coming in or not initial discussion, secondary, second discussion, Mm. and then coming in instead at the, uh, the solution that you guys have offered instead. I think this is really elegant. I really like it. Mm. Um, I think that, I mean, there's, there are many things that it accomplishes really positively. And, but most particularly, I love how it fits into the shape of the season. I have, uh, I, I have come to be extremely enamored of the arc that we're giving Fingolfin. I didn't have such a clear idea of the arc of Fingolfin in this. Um, and I will admit, actually, when you guys started bringing Fingolfin in back in like episode two and so like with or three with mm-hmm. Bayor, right, and stuff at the beginning, I, w- I was like, okay, I, d- I didn't see where that was headed right away, but that what? was good. What, was good. what do you it, mean? It was excellent. I, I, no, I love the way that that has come about, um, especially since. Um, uh, the way that he serves as the kind of um, opposite number uh, to Finrod, right? The the, the kind of fin- and, and we you know we had them coming together at the end. It was Finrod who introduced Fingolfin to humans, right? And mm-hmm. and started the whole thing going. It was uh, it was uh, uh, Finrod's pet project that uh, Fingolfin started off with. Um, but then to show how the two of them have kind of grown separately, and of course fin- Finrod is going to be you know kind of coming around uh, a little bit towards him in the next uh, in the next uh, episode, but. And will in fact make some very similar choices. Right. Right. Yeah. No. I think that's that's it's really cool. And of course, you know, we we always knew we were building up to with Finrod. We were building up to the Athrobeth and Barahir. Right. We we knew that was where Finrod's trajectory was going. And of course, we always knew where Fingolfin was going to end up. Um, but I love the way I, I did not anticipate how skillfully Fingolfin's arc leading up to uh, the battle with Morgoth was going to be interwoven with the, with, with, with the humans. But I think it's been done extraordinarily well. Yeah. There's, there's been a lot of hard work on the part of quite a few people. Everybody involved in the script team has had a hand in crafting that. I think the original idea of having, um, Fingolfin, reacting having uh, Fingolfin reacting to stuff from Bayor was Rhiannon's back mm-hmm. you know back early in the season right right and um and Marie's been working working tirelessly on finding ways to to like have have we have we missed Fingolfin recently right yeah you know. right right um, yeah no, that's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah, I know. It, 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 so many wonderful ideas Rhiannon has mm-hmm. had, uh, and that's that's great. Um, and yeah, this is I, watching this grow has been has been delightful. It's one of the things that I really really enjoy about this project. I love mm-hmm. doing the brainstorming at the beginning, you know, like we did it, you know, the the first part of the season, and then to kind of come back around and see how the the unexpected branches that the tree has been throwing out since, since it was planted, uh, you know, back at the beginning is, is really fun. Uh, and I really, I really enjoy, uh, this, uh, uh, this, this part on it. So, uh, no, that's great. That's great. I think it, I think it works. And the Oloran thing, uh, Marie said Hakan was the one who was pushing hardest for Oloran's, uh, presence. Yes. Marie is also being somewhat humble in the fact that she was the one who first suggested it. Okay. Um, okay. 
uh, but Hakan and Florian, I think, were kind of instrumental in kind of fleshing out what that looks like or, or what that would feel like anyway. Right. Um, and, and how that would be different than, for example, Olmo. Because um, Olmo's kind of a big hammer. Um, right. You know, like, yes. like whereas Aloran is kind of a subtler, and that's kind of what we were, what we were trying to do here, is we were trying yes. to, to go along with the direction that you guys had given us and try to make a little, a little subtle, like add a little subtlety and have there be a progression over the course of the season right. in this direction. Because I think that what when you guys are thinking a lot of this stuff through in the beginning of the season, every every issue that you're confronting is something that needs to be solved by a single decision. Right. And which a, a lot of times is true. And it's a lot easier when you're going episode by it, by episode and talking through those episodes in detail. And the, and the story is growing organically to, as you go. Yeah. Right. To start to yeah. build that up. In, in a in a particular direction so yeah no that's so i think thinking it through might be a generous description of what we do at the beginning i, I <laughs> we do I'll think think about think think uh, we discuss the issue yeah through yeah. might be kind of uh ambitious perhaps it's not that we think it well, to the <laughs> end you know yeah i i recently started going back and listening to uh like older like the the very first uh sessions of the film film uh sector of the mm-hmm. uh tolkien professor podcast and um i'm one astounded by how young dave's voice sounds um, <laughs> i was i was like oh my gosh he sounds like a little kid what is <laughs> um and second secondly like you guys were having so much fun and it was so inspiring that it was it was impossible while listening that to that to not get excited about uh, about getting involved in this so yeah glad to be here yeah awesome hey great brian was just touching on the very last thing i wanted to i wanted to touch on here um that is of course there's another opportunity but of course also responsibility that we have in bringing Aloran is in is that this story also then has to be part of the long-term development of Aloran's character as well right we have to think about the role uh, not only the role that he has played here but he's not you know Aloran you know least of all of the Maiar is not going to be somebody who's just like flitting in playing a little role and then leaving right and disappearing um this is going to be part of the long-term story of Aloran so Brian was just saying um uh that the thing he liked best about uh Aloran uh was the aftermath how this informs his later line of even the very wise cannot see all ends um yeah yeah like thinking about how does this play into I mean ultimately you know we, we need to be playing the long game and thinking about Gandalf's own calling and Gandalf's own role and what he's going to be doing as, you know, uh, a wizard uh, in Middle-earth um, through with the defeat of Sauron. But also, of course, and more immediately than that even, this is all going to be building up towards Aloran's choice to volunteer yeah. for that job right yeah. um and so looking at how he is in already involved and how he has um 
been involving himself, you know, why, why he's a good choice to be, you know, one of the Astari and why mm-hmm. in the end, even if reluctantly, according to one version of it, he volunteers, um, is, um, is, uh, um, is important. And, and, and I like this. I mean, I think that we can see, um, the kinds of, you know, that, that Oloran's presence invites the parallels, right? Invites yeah. the comparisons, um, uh, with the war of the ring. Um, and I think, um, uh, yeah, Brian says it makes it very clear why he might be reluctant. <laughs> yes, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Um, it's, yeah, that's true. It's, 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 it's his reaction at the end all, of all this. Oh, oops. Yeah, oops, exactly. As Marie says, we didn't want, we, we wanted Aloran not to foresee the duel and so be taken by surprise that Fingolfin responds this way, right? Exactly. Like, oh, uh, yeah, did I just kill Fingolfin there with my little <laughs> visitation? Uh, not not what I had in mind there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Aloran's journey um, is going to be a really interesting one. And, and again, it goes back to that episode back in season one. And I, I don't remember who. His idea was to have a Lauren and the person who will one day be known as as uh, as Saruman right. and Myron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Kurum, Thank you. Um, they're along for the ride on that, and to see their responses to Manway's attempt to make peace with his brother, mm-hmm. and that takes us all the way down to. Lord of the Rings, yeah, and I think that that yeah. who, whoever his idea that was, I hope it wasn't mine because I I think it's great <laughs> and I don't like to say that about my own idea. No, it's 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 perfectly again. It's one of the nice things about being forgetful is that like you know when you come up across an idea that you had a long time ago and you don't remember coming up with it, it's much easier to be like objectively excited Absolutely. about it. Be like, that's a good idea yeah, because that's not the because the correspond the you can separate it from gosh I'm brilliant aren't I and instead yeah. just kind of enjoy the idea as if somebody else suggested it because as far as you yeah. remember somebody else might, might have well have done uh, so yeah no it's it's always fun um, but uh, cool all right well um, that um, that was excellent I think this is a great resolution um, so we're moving towards. Um, Right. The next session is not going to be the next episode. We're going to be doing uh, we're going to be doing post production stuff. We're going to be talking about sets, props, and locations. Um, so definitely wanted to prompt people if you go to forums.signumuniversity.org, um, you go to the Film Film Project uh, set season five, uh, and then you can go there. You see, we'll see uh, discussion places where you can suggest ideas, concepts, uh, drawings, illustrations, photos. Um, uh, that would be really awesome. We're going to talk about um, all those things next time. And our next session is on Thursday, August 12th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. As we come down, we wind down towards the eventual end of Season 5. You realize, of course, since we've already been planning that we're going to have to do, like, 20, 25 seasons, if we end up taking two calendar years on every season from here on out, uh, we're really uh, setting a sharp challenge for ourselves yeah. <laughs> moving forward. But uh, but that, that's all right. It's okay. Um, it's all about... Um, um, it's all about the, the long... Hall here. Um, 
uh, as I as is my my new slogan: "Life is too short to go quickly." So uh, <laughs> linger on it now, because uh, you may never get another chance. So let's uh, let's uh, let's not let the opportunity pass by. So awesome! Um, I think that was also Ben Golfin's slogan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Um, Stephen is asking, does that include fourth age content? No, no, we were planning on ending the show with Sam getting on a boat, as I'm pretty sure where we were planning uh, planning to end that. But um, uh, exactly. Okay. But anyway, so, seasons is still a conservative. Estimate. It is. It is a conservative, especially as they keep they keep we keep splitting them and everything. So I mean, originally I think we had we had roughly charted out ten seasons to get to the War of Wrath, but that seems ridiculously uh, 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 yeah. optimistic at this point. Um, yeah. Not gonna happen. <laughs> so yeah, I mean we're getting to the Dagor Bragalock in five. So uh, yeah, that's all good. It's all good. Um, <laughs> anyway, very good. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for joining us. Do uh, uh, log into the discussion forums there and make some suggestions. Uh, love to have, you know, you've been hearing about people who have been involved in this discussion along the way, as Bree was talking about. There's a whole bunch of us who have been involved in this uh, for years already. But, of course, it's uh, always delightful to have uh, new folks coming in and uh, contributing thoughts and suggestions. So um, if you've been listening uh, for uh, a while, or even if you are a new discoverer of the project, uh, please do uh, jump in and uh, let us know what you think and make some suggestions. It's uh, being, a, being a part of the active discussion is a really great uh, element uh, of uh, the film film experience. So I will say uh, in the meantime, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.